but uh, we're glad you are here. So, Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my vineyard, my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. Now, who's the let me? For my beloved is God. A song concerning his vineyard. Okay, so the me refers to the prophet Isaiah. He's the one that is speaking, singing this song concerning his vineyard. Now, to understand this, we have to put it in the context of the Old Testament. When God established his relationship with Israel and called them his chosen people, there is also language used throughout the Old Testament that declares that God is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. as if it were a marriage relationship. This carries through all of Scripture until you get to Ephesians 5, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ is then called the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. And that is the pattern for Christian marriage between a man and a woman, is the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. But that goes all the way back into the Old Testament where God declares Israel is his bride. Now, that is why when Israel went after idols, it's not only referred to as idolatry, it's referred to as adultery. Okay? It is referred to as adultery because of this relationship that is described between the bridegroom and the bride. Here, Israel is the vineyard, and the beloved is God, the husband. It is a very tender song. Let me for my uh, sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, a very tender, loving song between groom and bride. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. The actual word is mountainside, okay? He dug it and cleared it of stones. Because it was on a mountainside, he could not plow it. He dug it by hand and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Uh, the actual Hebrew word represents the most expensive 
grapevines you could get. Okay? So he spared no expense, dug it by hand, got rid of the stones by hand, and planted only the best vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. The word hewed out also is understood as meaning he dug it out of stone by hand. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Many translations say sour grapes. Okay. So that's the story. That's the song. God did everything there was to do for his vineyard. He spared no expense. He did everything they needed. And this is describing that relationship with God from the time he chose them. He then brought them out of Egypt. He gave them the promised land. He blessed them. But the vineyard only produced wild or sour grapes. In other words, the vineyard failed. Now let's go on. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? This is pointing to Israel's going after idols, breaking the relationship, producing the exact opposite of what God wanted. Okay? Now, uh, lest we be throwing rocks at Israel, that's what we do every day when we sin. Uh, we yield, you know, look at what God has done for us. He sent his son to die for us and rise again. He's done everything for our salvation. And how do we act? We don't yield good grapes. We yield wild grapes from our sinful nature. So it's, it's kind of a self-condemning indictment. Who are you going to pick? God, who did everything for his vineyard, or the vineyard that failed? Condemnation. And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove the hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds 
that they rain no rain upon it. So it's cursed. Okay? The hedge was kind of the fence. Wild animals would now get in. There was going to be no care for it. It would go to seed. It would become a weed patch. God was abandoning it because of the sin. And here it's very specific. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In other words, Israel has failed. Israel has failed. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. When Israel failed, what we see throughout Isaiah is a reference to the suffering servant. There was going to be another Israel. And here's where Israel got confused. They thought this suffering servant, this Israel, was them. They thought it was them. It was Christ. Because Christ was going to come and live as Israel should have, as Adam should have. He's going to be the faithful servant, unlike the nation Israel that failed. He's going to take their place and do what they couldn't. But the Jews missed that. Okay? They missed that. And so the Lord of hosts, Israel, of course, we know the history. The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, the Babylonians the southern kingdom. Uh, there were problems after that with uh, the, uh, the Greeks. They were under judgment. Now, that's what's the background for Matthew 21. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Now, those are Jesus' words. Every Jew knew what he was talking about, especially the Pharisees, because they knew Isaiah 5. So that's where Jesus begins his teaching. They recall, he brings to their memory, what the prophet Isaiah had said about God and his vineyard from Isaiah 5. They would know 
what that meant. This was not a surprise. This was not a new teaching. It would bring to their remembrance Isaiah 5. And then Jesus adds a twist. He always does. Okay? And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. He rented it to them, and the payment was a portion of the fruit that they raised in the vineyard. That was the rent. He was simply going to collect what was rightfully his. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. These were the prophets. If you trace how Israel treated the prophets, this makes perfect sense. The vineyard not only failed when God sent messengers to them, they didn't listen. In fact, they treated them shamefully. So even when God tried to warn them that they were failing, they mistreated the very people he sent, the very ones he sent. And then, verse 37, finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. And who is that? Jesus Christ. Only the tenants do just the opposite. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They assumed that when the son came, the father must be dead. The son is now coming. If we kill him, we get the vineyard. We get the vineyard. No end to evil. Okay? No end to evil. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, this parable was spoken by Jesus before they killed him. And notice it says they took him outside the vineyard. He was crucified outside the city wall of Jerusalem. Okay? So they took him outside the city wall and they killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Ultimately, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and it was a miserable death. It was a horrible siege. 
So all of this that Jesus is telling in this parable is actually prophecy. It's prophecy. Israel had failed, but Jesus was not going to fail. He was going to be the Israel that they were supposed to be in their behalf, the substitutionary atonement. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 118.22, one of the most quoted passages in the Bible. The stone that the builders rejected was Jesus Christ, has become the cornerstone. We think of a cornerstone on the side of a building. It's better to think of it as the stone in the top of an archway. What happens when you pull out the top stone from the archway? Collapses. Okay? So uh, sometimes better read the capstone. Jesus is the capstone. And he had been rejected. This was not man's doing, this was God's doing. God is the one that made this stone important. God is the one that made this stone the cornerstone. And it's marvelous in our eyes. It is in ours. It is in ours. It's marvelous. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. That is, it's going to be taken away from those that reject the stone. And it's going to be given to those that believe in the stone because as they believe in him, they are going to bear fruit. Not wild grapes, good ones. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You reject the stone, it kills you. What it's saying. You reject Jesus Christ, you die. You die because of that stone. The very stone that was sent to save you becomes the very stone that condemns you when you reject that stone. When you reject what he's done for you. This is a, a clear parable about who Jesus is, what he's going to do, and how important he is. Very clear. 
I love the next line. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking the, about them. Do you think? Okay. Even a moron could figure this out. Okay. They got no Holy Spirit. They're on their own as it is. But even it was so clear and condemning, they knew it was against them. They didn't know how. They didn't know how. They didn't know why. But they just perceived that uh, that doesn't sound good. Okay. I think that's us. Is he talking to us? Okay. They just didn't get it. This is just the sign of total spiritual blindness that we are born with. And the only one that can do anything about it is God. And when God speaks his word, he sends the Holy Spirit through that word. But if you reject it, then you will not understand the Word of God. You will not see Jesus Christ for who He really is, and the very stone sent to save you will condemn you. When He comes to judge the living and the dead, He's the one that's going to bring the judgment. Are you my child? Or aren't you? There's no middle position. There's, almost, there's no almost. Well, maybe if I'd have known you're his child and you believe, or you don't. And in one case, the stone is your salvation, and in the other case, the stone is your condemnation. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And we see that in the gospel lesson we read for today, the one we studied last week, when the Pharisees ask, uh, chief priests ask, where does your authority come from? And they wouldn't ask, where does John's, the Baptist's authority come from? That's what Jesus asked them. And they wouldn't say from heaven because then they'd be condemned. And they wouldn't say from earth because they were afraid of the crowds because they held John to be a prophet. So here, they wouldn't arrest Jesus because the crowds thought he was a prophet. He was a prophet. So that's why these two lessons are always read together. It's always read together. And by the way, this parable that we just went through is also in Mark and Luke. It's a major, very important because it's so clearly stating the case of what Jesus is doing and how they are acting. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's one of the parables that's quoted in all three Gospels. So uh, that's why we read it and read it often. All right, thoughts about that? Yeah, Jan. Verse 41. 41. Yeah. 
Well, that's Jesus speaking. They said to him, right, they are speaking prophecy without knowing it. It's kind of like when the high priest said, uh, may Jesus' blood be on us and our children. He didn't know what he was saying, but it was prophecy. That's, this is the prophecy. They are condemning themselves with the words from their own mouths. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You'll come back. Okay, Marilyn. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, the question is, we were born spiritually blind. When are our eyes opened? And it is baptism. Or if you're not baptized, it may be later in life when you hear the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit works faith in you. That's when our spiritual eyes are opened, okay? And we begin to understand spiritual things, the things of God, okay? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, the question is... Um, did the everyday Jew understand that he was talking about them? The Pharisees did. Um, I would say it depended on each and every person there. Some of them probably realized it. I'm sure there were even some there that had come to faith in Jesus and kind of liked Jesus telling this parable because they were finally getting theirs. Okay, But I'm sure it ran the gamut in the audience because this is when he's teaching in the temple. So there are lots of people around. He told a series of three parables in the temple. And so there are people, they'd, they'd all be Jews, but, but they're listening to him teach. Yeah. Okay, uh, verse 43, does it mean they're going to the Gentiles? Uh, it certainly could, because it's given to a people producing its fruit. And I, I'd look at that as it means both Jew and Gentile. It's, it's literally the New Testament church, which includes both Jew and Gentile, because they're the ones that are going to come to faith and produce fruit. Yes, Bob. Um, there is always that, uh, that danger um, that because it says he's going to give it to the people producing its fruit. But where does the fruit begin? Receiving the stone. That's where it begins. Through faith in the stone, through knowing 
Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, that's what produces the fruits, not apart from that. And frankly, Jesus is the kingdom of God. So, um, yeah, you need to look at that carefully. All right, other things? Yeah, Doug. I don't think so. They're just both judgment. They're both judgment. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess you could say that if you wanted to go that way, you could say uh, the one who falls on the stone is the one who rejects. When the stone falls on you, it's final judgment. I mean, you could go that route and be fairly safe. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the epistle. And this really ties in because it's talking about how important the stone is. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay. In other words, that's his claim to fame. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the law said. Of the people of Israel, he is proclaiming, I am not a Gentile. Of the tribe of Je Benjamin, Benjamin was considered the other faithful tribe. Judah was considered a faithful tribe. Benjamin went with Judah. Benjamin was where the tribe of Gen Benjamin's land was where Jerusalem was, okay? And Benjamin was also the tribe of the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul was a Benjamin. So, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means he's of pure Jewish descent. He speaks the languages. He follows the customs. As to the law of Pharisee, we have indications, uh, even in the book of Acts, that he was born to Pharisaic parents. Okay? As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We know about that. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, according to the Pharisaic law, he was blameless. But that was an outward observance, not the heart. But by their definition, he would have been blameless. Now, we say, you know, that, that sounds very, or by human standards, he would have been, that sounds real good. 
And every one of us would have our own list. I go to church every Sunday. I take communion every time it's offered. I read my Bible every day. My parents were Christian and brought me to baptism. We could make our own list. But if it's all based on I and what I've done, then it's no better than this list. But we all could make our own list and be pretty proud about it, okay? Be pretty proud about it. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, none of these things he listed is worth anything compared to Christ. None of it. Whatever gain you have in life is nothing compared to Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Okay? For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, you list the most important things to you in your entire life, and they're all rubbish compared to Christ. And I hate to tell you this, the word there isn't rubbish. Some nice English translators use the word rubbish. It's dung. It's dung. I count them is as dung. That's how strong Paul is speaking. In order that I may gain Christ. You make a list of everything in your life that is important to you, and nothing holds a candle compared to knowing Christ. This is a priority statement. This is a statement you set your priorities by. That Christ is that important. That it's worth giving any of these things up to know Him. To believe in him. See, that's how it ties in to the other two lessons, because it's telling how important the stone is. Okay? The stone is. And how it was that important to the Apostle Paul. And be found in him, not having a righteousness, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All right. Paul goes into the same argument in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, when he says, but now there is another righteousness revealed 
apart from the law, but the law and prophets have borne witness to it. There's two righteousnesses. There is a righteousness that is by your own outward works and doing. Isaiah calls that righteousness um, filthy rags. Filthy rags. Won't do. The difference is God's righteousness. Now, God's righteousness is not based on what we do and the law. When God reveals his righteousness and the law and the prophets testify to it, that is Christ. That is Christ fulfilling the very uh, specific task that Israel failed to be faithful and obedient to God to perfectly keep the law in our behalf as our substitute, to be the perfect, obedient son that God wanted Israel to be. Only this righteousness is different because this righteousness has been earned by Christ. He is the perfect righteous one, And that righteousness is declared to be yours by faith in Jesus Christ. When you have faith in Christ and God looks at you, he does not see your sin. He sees Christ's perfect righteousness because you believe in and trust in him. And see, this is what Luther came to realize, that when it talked about the righteousness of God in the Scriptures, Luther, first of all, interpreted that is that I'm not meeting his righteous demands. So he always felt guilty, even flogged himself. But then he came to realize that the righteousness of God through faith is not what I do. It's what Christ did for me, and it is mine by faith. Therefore, I am righteous. I am forgiven before God. Forgiven by God. That was Luther's, some call it a tower experience, where he actually came to believe the gospel. But this is the righteousness of God, not ours, of God, meaning it belongs to him. And he gives it by faith, by faith. And that's what Paul says. 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay? That's the only way you can be righteous before God. It's the only way. It's by faith in Christ. And then you are declared righteous. All right, let's go on here. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. All right. We've been raised with Christ. Now, we are to live through this world, and it says that we may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. What's the suffering that's being talked about? The suffering that's being talked about is the death of your old nature. The death of your old sinful nature. In other words, it's putting to death what you want and putting what Christ wants first. It's death to sin. Now you say, okay, that's hard. We get in spiritual struggles, and we know what God wants us to do, and we know what we want to do. Do we always do what God wants to do? No. And even when we do what God wants us to do, we sure wish we could have done something else. That's dying to sin. That's dying to sin. Putting aside what you want for what God wants. You're dead to sin, alive to God. That's that spiritual struggle that goes on in each and every one of us. So when it says that uh, we share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, we don't die as Christ did. He died on the cross once for all. But we die in our personal lives as sin is put to death in our lives on a daily basis through our baptism. When we don't, When sin doesn't die and lives in us, then that's what we have to have forgiveness for. But the task is to put it to death. That's the power of the resurrection, to put sinful life to death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By any means possible. That's the first thing. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. All right, let's talk about that. 
none of you are going to get to be perfect before you go to heaven. I hate to tell you that. Wives, leave your husbands alone. They ain't going to get any better. <laughs> Not going to get any better. Okay? We are all sinful. And just when we conquer one sin in our life, what happens? Another one shows up. It's a constant battle. We're not going to be perfect in this life. But, as it says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'm going to try. Not because I have to. Not because I'm earning my way to heaven. Not because of my righteousness, I want to do it for the one who made me his own, who gave his all for me. That's our motivation now, not to earn anything from God, but to say thanks to God, to please him. That's our motivation. That's our motivation. So we strive for it. We press on. Anybody remember that uh, little phrase from the last capital campaign? Okay. I press on. All right. Because Christ may be his own. That's our motivation. That's knowing the stone and him working fruits through us. The proper order. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forget behind. Paul had a lot to forget, folks. Paul had been a persecutor of the church, thrown people in prison, fought Christ with everything he had. That's what he says I'm putting behind. No matter what's happened in your lives, put it behind. It is forgiven. God has put it behind. It is forgiven. Don't let it drag you down. Put it behind and move forward. Because you have the forgiveness of sins. We all know people who have committed a sin and it bothers them and, and disturbs them their whole life. It prevents them from being the person that God wants them to be. Put it behind. Know you're forgiven. And as he says, strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he, that's what his goal is. That call is extended to all of us. And our striving won't end until we're there. Because we're striving to live for Christ in a sinful world because Christ made us his own. Christ made us his own.
Okay? All right. Questions or comments about this lesson? Jan? Well, Christ died and killed sin. When our faith is in him, his death through our baptism seeks to kill sin. In that way, it's like him. And there is that. And the comment was that people do become more Christ-like, and they do. They learn to control anger. They learn other, other uh, uh, behaviors that are pleasing to God. But they're still fighting other things, and it's always a battle. It's always a battle. And sometimes it's a battle that you think you've done it all, and you're pretty dang good. And that's sin, too. <laughs> that's sin, too. All right. Anything else? Yes. Yeah. That's right. And that's why Satan nags at you. When you try to put sin behind you and Satan's nag, then you have to tell yourself over and over again, God forgives me. Um, for him at this point, it's obviously easy. But he may have struggled at other times. He may have struggled. I'm sure he had a lot of thought time to think about the past when he was in prison. Yes. <laughs> Satan loves to attack us when we're down. And what's his biggest attack? His most, uh, the one that really gets to us. Well, maybe because of this, you're not saved. That's, that's the big one. That's the big one. Nancy? Yes. He is struggling. Uh, here, he's saying what he's trying to do. But Romans 7 is telling us that it's a struggle to do it. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. That's the struggle trying to kill that old sinful nature in us, okay? That's tough. All right, anything else? Well, you know, we talked about I Press On. That was the, the last campaign we ran. First campaign we ran was Go Forward. We have a theme for the next one. And it's tell the next generation, because it centers around the school. Tell the next generation. It is from Psalm 78, verse 4.
So that's the, that's the theme, and you'll be hearing more about that. The first meeting concerning our capital campaign is this Wednesday night. So, all right. Any other questions or comments? All right, let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.